welcome to Beyond Clinical Medicine, or what they don't teach you in medical school. I'm Dr. Dave Hogan, filling in for Dr. Rob Strauss. In this episode, I get the distinct honor and pleasure of talking with Megan Fitzgerald, RN, MPH, DRPH. Megan is an associate professor with the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health and a private equity investor. She has decades of experience in working in the healthcare field, ranging from frontline emergency medicine and public health patient care to working with and advising prominent healthcare firms. So first of all, welcome, Megan. Hi, how are you, David? So nice to see you. And I'm, I'm honored to uh, be on the Team Health call. I've been a big fan of the company for a really long time. So uh, this is a real honor. Well, I think the honor is actually ours. And I've been very excited to finally be able to get this podcast arranged to get a little bit of time to speak with you. Now, Megan, you've written a book. What a crazy <laughs> thing has. to do. <laughs> and first and foremost, let me tell everybody that in no way did you ask me to promote or mention your book, but I found out about it. I read your book. It's called Ascending Davos. What in the world possessed you to write a book? Yeah, I know. Well, first of all, everyone can write a book nowadays, so it's actually not that big of a deal, but not everyone can sell a book or get it read. And I, I found that out as well, too. So I, I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list, but I think I'm on like the public health bestsellers list. There's actually a section of my library called public health thrillers. So that, that was really the goal. I teach at Columbia, as you said, I've been teaching there for seven years. Uh, the class I teach there is called the business of healthcare, where we walk through the Fortune 500 and the 18% of GDP that makes up healthcare payers, providers, um, you know, technology, everything that kind of goes into the payment flow of the U.S. system. And every year, I had to make a syllabus. And there's really no syllabus for the business of healthcare. There's lots of classes that are clinical. There's lots of classes that are, you know, electives or, or things that are focused on one's degree. But really, no one was talking about the economic side of healthcare and the importance of it. Uh, and also that you can do well um, by doing good and capitalism is okay in healthcare. That was kind of the underlying message. So my book took the students through my career from frontline care in an emergency room and on the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation, all the way through working at Merck, Pfizer, joining boards, becoming a CEO. Uh, and now today for the last four years, you know, being on the investment side in private equity. So it's a bit about pivots it's a bit about the raw and real of working uh, in healthcare. And then also just kind of um, a bit of a love story to public health and how important it is, um, you know, to take care of populations when that field is, you know, usually seven cents on the US healthcare dollar and no one really thinks much of it. I'll tell you, um, that's a very understated description of what this book is. In particular, I found your um, confessions almost as it were with regard to how personal events impacted you and how you dealt with those and how that changed your perspective to a large degree, particularly working on, on your thesis um, <laughs> yeah. and, and how that sort of wove in to who you, who you are and what you've become. 
um, in uh, in public health and in healthcare. And um, I, I, where can we get this book? Oh, gosh. Well, for starters, if anyone wants it or you want to do a book club, I'm happy to send it to you for free. It's also on Amazon. And 100% of the proceeds have gone to the Harlem Children's Zone in New York. A, a very prominent leader named Jeffrey Canada decided to start a school uh, and make education um, the great differentiator. As you all know, everyone that listens to this podcast is obviously highly educated, and you'd have to be honest to look back to say that your education was a differentiator, and it's not something that's offered to everyone. So the Harlem Children's Zone basically backstops and ensures all those kids go K through college, and um, the achievement rate has been honestly spectacular. And when Jeffrey spoke at my graduation at Columbia, I felt really lazy in the audience. Sometimes you meet people and you're like, wow, that's what they're doing. And so I always thought someday I wanted to give back to that cause and his mission in some way. So I was so worried back to selling books that I'd be like writing $100 and now I've given tens of thousands of dollars. So everything from that book went straight to the school and I'm, I'm so glad I didn't have to like reach into my savings account to not be embarrassed that I didn't have any money to give the organization after making a big deal about saying all the proceeds of the book's gonna go to the school. So it's uh, doing well by doing good. Well, I appreciate you having written it and clearly that it, that is... Uh, not going to be a problem if people just take a look at this. It's it's a great piece of communication. Speaking of which, uh, okay, I know it's a cheap segue, but it was good. It was good. Uh, I got it. The pivot. Yes, um, there is so much information and so much uh, back and forth going on right now about the pandemic in healthcare and. Public health, of course, is, is by design one of the major leading forces that is supposed to be able to provide us education and guidance as far as clinical processes, et cetera, um, throughout pandemics and other related disasters. And there's some issues right now. Um, part of the perception has been that some clinical organizations and individual clinicians look at the guidance that they get from public health, which of course in any battle changes as the dynamics of that battle change and as we learn more, but they often see those as reversals or quote flip-flopping. And in particular, when you put in some of the political overlays with this, it becomes difficult. So one of the questions is why doesn't public health Speak with a unified voice. Oh, wow. You know, I, I, I wrote some op-eds on this, and I think it first starts with that healthcare is highly personal, therefore it's really political. So it, it, it's just a volatile topic to begin with, you know? And so last night I had a friend over for game night, and she's not vaccinated, T minus 30 seconds, it's personal and political and it's game night, right? So that's, I think the first, you know, kind of thing to know, and you know this really well. I think second is public health looks after a population traditionally, they don't normally look after individuals. So sometimes the guidance is for a swath for thousands, not for the one. And I think what we've seen now in order to win the war on the pandemic, it's now a ground game. There's 90 million people that are not vaccinated 
a small percentage has a good reason for not doing it, but a large percentage doesn't. And they're very skeptical about the information that they got. A vaccine's on hold, it's off hold. I was around when we were telling people to wash their groceries. And I thought that that was just crazy. I knew it was crazy. I knew it was crazy to say, don't wear a mask. What you should have done is just said the truth. We don't want everyone wearing a mask because we don't want to run out for healthcare providers. So I think it's personal, it's political. To your point, it changes a lot. It's also, you know, a world of like quick cancel culture. So if you were to say, hey, time out, I got it wrong. Here's why. Here's the data that came in today on this. Some in public health are afraid to do that. I think um, Tony Fauci's tried to do that. I think he's getting better at that. But it, we're so quick not to want to say, hey, hey, I don't know. You oftentimes don't hear someone say, I don't know. In medicine, it's okay to say that. I'm getting the answer for you. I don't know. So I think we get it wrong because of those reasons. And also there's different mandates. The WHO has a very different mandate than the CDC than the local health department. They also need to remind people of that, that mandate. Hey, I'm looking out for Africa, not just the United States. And sometimes they don't really explain their mandate um, very well. So I think speaking with one voice is impossible. It's not something that will ever happen, but there's certainly more we can do to at least take some ownership and accountability when we get it wrong. And also just to say, I don't know. So often it seems like um, learning to listen to those voices you need to be listening to uh, because there are so many different perspectives and, and, and different voices. Um, you know, this brings up something that I find interesting because it's something that I um, have run into considerably as I got into my public health career as well uh, from emergency medicine, and I still do both. Um, there is this disconnect between clinical medicine and the provision of healthcare on the ground and often the public health professionals who don't specifically tell docs and nurses how to care for patients, but they do provide that critical, important guidance. Um, do you have a perspective on that? I do only in that anytime there's an official panel giving guidance, if someone on that panel is not patient facing, I'm often very worried about it for the reason you said, you know, if you're not dealing with patients day to day, um, and you're giving guidance, you're missing out on a swath of what actually is happening in reality. And so when you're scribing policy or making up something, it sounds good until you're realizing that you're not in front of these patients. You've never vented a patient. You don't know what it's like to try and talk a patient into doing something or helping them. Uh, it, it just seems like a real miss. And yet I keep seeing all these panels and all these special groups that are giving guidance. And then I'm like, okay, I quickly get on the list and I'm like, where's the ER doc? Where's like the ICU nurse? Where's the you know person that's working in public health in the community? So to me, that's a miss that oftentimes we do things in an ivory tower or we do things as a thought think tank, even on the economic side, but we don't actually value real life experience to the level that we should. Right. That, and, and I agree with that 100 percent. I find it so very true um, that that often you know, when I'm using my public health hat, it seems like I, you know, I can do the epi curves and I can do the predictions and I can do the analysis. But if there's not that clinical influence, uh, 
and sort of ability to infer about, okay, this really does or doesn't work in a clinical environment one way or the other that um, there, there ends up being a big disconnect and it's certainly not received as well. No, and you'd be better, you know, you'd be better at making predictions. I knew there wasn't going to be herd immunity soon. I knew it. One, it, because a virus is endemic, but two, I was on the front line and watched people not get vaccinated. So I think if you had asked the people on the ground for their advice, what's going on, that that is your, you know, leading indicator, if you will. And it's certainly something that would have helped people make a prediction that 90 million people may not have gotten vaccinated and we have to take care of them and we have to work on this as a ground war. And so I, I think it was, I, I think it's a miss, but I still think there's opportunity because I, I truly believe the only way out of this pandemic is at the local level. Fully agree. Um, in fact, it's scary how much I agree with that. Yeah. Um, that's a that sort of thing and not providing that clinical linkage certainly a pitfall. What other kinds of things have you perceived or run into that um, end up being pitfalls with regard to clinicians? being able to receive, perceive, process, and utilize public health guidance and vice versa? Yeah, I think mo most of the folks I know on the ground do a really good job of taking care of individuals, and they've caught on to this difference between population health guidance and then like what really happens on the ground. So I, I find that those that are most effective on the ground have a level of empathy, uh, it, you know, rooted in reality. So they're willing to listen. They're willing to ask open-ended questions. Why aren't you getting vaccinated? Why are you fearful of the hospital? Do you not have transportation to the hospital? Things that someone at a national level that certainly didn't work on the ground wouldn't have an appreciation for. I helped someone last week go to the hospital, basically had to walk her almost into the hospital. She was very, very fearful of needles. It was real. It was a real phobia. She would turn down a transfusion not to have a needle. So walking through what that meant, also having a test, she didn't want to have a COVID test. She was convinced that it would touch her brain. And so I had to walk her through with open-ended questions, what was the reason for her not wanting to go in? Also had to explain to her what consent is, that she doesn't have to do everything that's told to her and she has to be told about it. So um, she's great. Went to the hospital, definitely had COVID just like we predicted, left, and then because of the experience, got the vaccine. Again, that was a lot of work, but that's like what we do on the ground with individuals that is not being addressed at the population level. I think that shows the uh, basic ER nurse and clinician principles that were part of your beginnings. Um, yeah, I was an EMT too in Washington, D.C., and that was like a pretty place to be, uh, you know, on an ambulance. So I think all that I've learned in life, I learned on an ambulance. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. I, mean, I often tell people most of the important things that I learned in life, I learned from Star Trek, but that's another story. Totally. By the way, it's amazing how, how on point Star Trek has been. It's kind of eerie. This is true. Yeah, all their insights have been, you know, kind of eerie. So, I mean, we've talked about several things here with regard to um, communication with COVID and some of the pitfalls, et cetera. What, are there some things that we can concretely tell our clinicians that might help them to, to make some sense of this? Well, first of all, I think 
you know, letting them know that a lot of us recognize what they're going through. Burnout's real. A lot of people are leaving the field. A lot of people don't want to be in the field. And I think first letting them know how valued they are and that we understand it, but also that this is now an endemic and we're living with it. It's not going away and that there's going to be a lot more noise for them than there, than there is, you know, good data, at least for the next year. We go from like boosters to eight months from no boosters two weeks prior and then last night, someone emailed me saying boosters are now for six months. I think you just got to get out of the noise. You know that the vaccines work. Your job is to try and get as many people vaccinated that you can. You really can't get caught up in how many boosters, when, what's going on, because it'll just take away from your day-to-day -day work. And that we all recognize that people that are in healthcare are burnt and we need to address that at a policy level. That's something that can't necessarily always be addressed at the local level. People aren't feeling good and people that have to take care of either seniors or kids are trying to go to work and do that, you know, especially for females in the industry, you're taking care of littles and then you're also taking care of parents and there's no respite for you while you're pulling a 12 and 14 hour shift. So I, I'd also like to think there's more that we can do um, to help them. And I think the biggest message I often tell people on the front line is that you don't realize the power of what you can do as an individual with your empathy, being open to a first and second conversation, uh, also weighing in. I often say to patients, I'm going to weigh in hard and I look at them in the eye. I'm coming in hot on this. You need to do X. If someone's willing to have that dialogue with you as an individual, you carry way more weight than anybody at the CDC. You certainly care, carry more weight than a governor. So I think you're really powerful as an individual is what I want to tell people on the front line, but also that we recognize that you're burnt, it's hard, and there's more that we need to do to help you. Well, Megan Fitzgerald, I am definitely grateful for you, uh, and I'm grateful for the things that you are doing to help keep things together in healthcare, and in public health, and in clinical medicine. This has been Beyond Clinical Medicine, or what they don't teach you in medical school. I'm Dr. Dave Hogan, setting in for Dr. Rob Strauss. Thanks for listening.